uh, and again, thanks for joining me. Um, I happened to just see from uh, the Solari report, Catherine Austin Fitz uh, was uh, very graciously announcing our True Healing Conference, which Meredith put in the chat, the truehealingconference.com. And believe it or not, I, I saw the schedule and the workshops uh, listed for the first time. I don't know why I haven't seen them. And it was, I actually felt like if this was an honor to be part of this, because this is really, uh, I think the people in the world who really know the most or who are really at the forefront of uh, the new biology, which is going to be key to where we're all heading here. So I hope everybody joins us. Uh, we just finished the COVID Miss 3. I think that's well worthwhile. Uh, everybody taking a look at that. I don't know if uh, Meredith or somebody can put up a, a link to that. I don't know exactly where it's available. Uh, I talked about school and Andy talked about legal issues in a very, I think, clear and inspiring way. And then ivermectin and then questions. So if somebody could um, put a link to that, that would be great in the chat. And then um, coming up, we will be posting, if we haven't already, the, I think, fourth, maybe the third, third or the fourth uh, of the Freedom Talks, I think is the name, where uh, a fellow named Dean asks Stefan, Lenka, Andy, and I a series of questions or gives us a series of topics and the three of us opine on that subject. And um, that I think uh, we'll somehow post that uh, somewhere. I'm not sure where that is or whether it's available right now. But that I think would be well worth seeing because I can tell you the explanation that I'm going to try to give for what happened in this part two of Stefan's experiments. He went over that and he <laughs> did a better job than I probably will. Although I haven't done it yet, so maybe he won't, but that would be my guess. So if everybody can uh, check that out, you'll get uh, another version of what I'm about to say here. So I think that's all the announcement. The only other thing I, before I launch into the topic, which I've changed a little bit, is I wanted to make a suggestion that I hope literally everybody who watches this does this. I'm not big on telling people what to do, but this case I am uh, because a friend of ours uh, suggested this a few months ago and gave us some, and then we made it ourselves. And I think it's really great. And everybody can do it at home. And it's basically called simply just fermented garlic. And everybody probably knows that garlic is one of the most healing uh, substances there is. Uh, I don't even need to get into why, but it has all kinds of beneficial effects. It's great to take on a daily basis. It's great to take at the first sign of a sickness. Uh, and I think unquestionably the best way to take garlic 
eat garlic is to ferment it for a month first uh, and then eat it. And if you get, if you feel any sickness coming on, drink the juice and eat as much as you feel comfortable eating. And my guess is that will help. So here's the recipe. You get a mason jar, you get clean water, and you get good salt, which is usually Celtic or Himalayan or one of those kinds. Uh, you take garlic, of course, organically or biodynamically grown. I don't think there's any such thing as wild garlic. Um, you separate the cloves, and then you can either peel it or not. And we've done it with both. Peeling seems to me a bit of a pain. So some we peeled uh, and it's, you can peel garlic, you can smash it first and that makes it easier to peel. And if you break it into little pieces or bigger pieces, that doesn't matter. Uh, but we also did some and it works fine, just not even peeling it. Just separate the cloves, fill up a jar, uh, then you put half a teaspoon of salt per cup of warm water, dissolve the salt in the water, and then fill up the jar so it's about this high above the garlic. So whatever size jar you're using, fill that whole thing up, you know, pack it down with garlic, put then the brine in, which is a half a cup of salt uh, per half, sorry, a half a teaspoon of salt per cup of water. And then fill up the jar, uh, put a little bit more than the garlic, you can leave maybe a half an inch below the lid, seal the lid, and put it in a normal place for a month. You can open it every once in a while or sometimes even every day just to let some of the uh, air out if you need to so it doesn't explode if it's getting really fizzy. And then in a month, you could put it in the refrigerator and then you can chop it, use it in cooking, eat it plain or drink the juice. And really, everybody should do it. It costs you nothing except the garlic. And if you grow the garlic, then you don't even have to buy that. And a little bit of salt. Everybody has salt. And everybody has a jar and everybody has water. Okay. With that said, um, today's topic uh, was to go over the part two of Stefan's experiments, which are not published quite yet and not quite finished, but he's um, made a lot of progress and I wanted to give people an update on that. Before I did that, I'm going to uh, go over something which I've gone over a little bit before, but it struck me and continues to strike me that one of the reasons why we have such discord, disagreement, and misunderstanding, not only amongst people, but even maybe in ourselves, is because we haven't gone back to the basics, which is simply how do we know anything? And I think if we spent a little bit of time on that question, at least starting to, know, to answer that question, then we can apply Stefan's experiment through that lens. And I think it will make more sense. So how do we know anything? Um, 
And as people probably know, I'm a, a kind of a schemer, which and I, what I mean by that is I, try, I like to make schemes uh, to try to simplify things so people can understand them better. So even though sometimes, and this may be a little too simplistic, um, I think it will help us organize our answer to that question. So there's basically two ways. One, you know things because of personal experience. In other words, you know a fire is hot because you put your finger near a flame and you feel you have the experience of burning your finger. Usually, most people move their finger hand away. And hopefully, you only have to do that once because you have learned without a shadow of a doubt that fire is hot and it will burn you and cause you to have a certain experience. And there's a lot of things in the world we learn by that method. Uh, and so I would call that method direct experience. In many times it engenders a feeling, in this case, pain, and that engenders a kind of learn, learning experience that you can then integrate with your thinking. And then you can truly say, I know that fire is hot. And my guess is nobody would be able to talk you out of that conclusion. Now, the second way in, is things of which you can have no direct experience of. And so I can give you a lot of examples for that, and I will give you some. Um, but these are things that no person could possibly have a direct experience of something. And so they have to use some other method for knowing whether this is accurate or true or not. Now, that method is typically what we call science. So science is the essentially the recognized method of understanding and investigating and knowing, hopefully without, without a shadow of a doubt, that something is true or not. And so those are the two methods. Now, the next step in this is to point out that each of these has, each of these methods has both benefits and pitfalls. So the first method, which is direct experience, the benefit is it's freely available to everybody and it essentially comes quote, downloaded with the program we call life. Every animal does it, probably every plant does it, every human being does it. We don't need to buy anything, we just need to live and we can have direct experiences out of which we can know things. But the pitfalls are two major ones and there may be more that I haven't thought of quite yet. The first one is that our perceptions are incorrect. So let me give you an example of that. If you look down a row of, 
hundred telephone poles stretching over, say, a mile or so, your direct experience, your perception, will tell you that the telephone poles get shorter as the further away from you they get. So that is your direct experience of the, say, height of those telephone poles. The reality is that they don't get shorter. Now, how do you know that? You could do investigate that in one of two ways. One is you could get binoculars or telescope. And so you change essentially your perception and you would discover that the telephone poles, in fact, don't even look like they're getting shorter as they move away from you. Somehow that was, you might call it a perceptual trick that you fell for. The other thing you could do, which is even more powerful, you could get a tape measure and measure the first pole and then the 10th pole and then the 100th pole. And likely you would find out that each pole is the same height. And so you would be forced to conclude that no matter what your direct experience told you, your direct experience was simply incorrect that essentially you made a perceptual error. So that's the first pitfall, and it's a very common pitfall. Now, there's another pitfall with direct experience, which is, uh, to a certain extent, even though, as I, I said before, that the direct experience method essentially comes downloaded with the program of being a, a person, it's also, at the same time, a skill which has to be cultivated and developed, or at least it has to be not interfered with. And actually, I think it's more the second, and anybody who watches the last COVID Miss 3 will probably know by now that I think the, one of the main ways, if not the main way, we interfere with people's perception is through the phenomena called school. And let me give you an example of this. And it's one that I've given many times. Um, when the uh, Europeans, white people, came to, the, uh, to North America and they met the native people, one of the things they heard was that the native people said they could uh, talk to or communicate with the trees. So, Presumably, the European people uh, went up to a tree and maybe listened, and they didn't hear anything. And so they ended up concluding that these native people were either crazy or delusional or somehow making this up because it's obvious that trees don't talk. Now, my response to that is it turns out you can investigate this phenomena and see who's correct. And you could probably find out that the native people heard things from trees that were actually very useful and could be actually verified. And so they in fact did hear communication from the trees. And as I've pointed out, only a fool would think that trees speak English or French. And besides that, 
given the fact that the Europeans were the ones who basically cut down millions of millions of trees, why, if you were a tree, would you even speak to a European person? Uh, as opposed to the native per people who helped cultivate them and give them better habitats for centuries or millennia. So that's an example where you can, in some ways, verify that the trees do in fact speak, but you people, in this case the Europeans, haven't developed the skill to perceive it and so you erroneously come to the conclusion that the phenomena doesn't exist. Another famous example was when the people who first met the Aboriginal people in Australia, they noticed that there could be families who were wandering miles apart in the bush. And one of them could find a watering place, a place where maybe they should camp. Um, and they sent out a signal to their friends and other family members to come, you know, and essentially gave them the coordinates. And then a few hours later, these people would show up and they, you know, rendezvous at the watering hole. And the white people were astonished by this and said, because there was no smoke signals, there was no wireless devices, there was no hand signals, and even if there were hand signals, they were miles apart, so nobody could have possibly seen that. Yet, it was obviously true. Uh, but yet, and so they asked them, how did you do that? And they said, well, we went into dream time, and we told them where the place was, and they heard it, and they came here. Simple as that. And of course, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it because their perception was unskilled. And so that's another example of you can only perceive what you've either been trained or at least not trained not to see. And that we have a big problem with that because we've had our perceptual ability, A, not trained, and B, essentially beaten out of us as children, as in told not to believe our own eyes. Now, the problem with the second part which is the, okay, so you don't know uh, based on your own experience. In other words, you, uh, or you misperceive. So again, the example of the telephone poles. And so in that case, you have to do what we call science, which is an investigation to try to find out what the truth of this situation is. Now, here's an example of how that comes about. So you hear, okay, so this looks like the telephone poles get smaller and smaller. You actually measure it and you find out they're exactly the same and it's only your perception that was off. And then you say, that's because uh, my brain makes patterns and my brain mis misinterpreted this pattern. And that's what uh, typically people would say about that. Now, the thing is, that may or may not be correct. But one thing I can tell you for sure is nobody has the experience that their brain is doing this. Think about that for a minute, because we say that all the time. 
well, that, that makes my brain so-and-so. At least for me, I have come to the point where I don't have any direct experience that my brain is doing anything. Okay, so in that case, you have to do an experiment. My point is, when you start doing experiments on things that you cannot perceive, that the pitfall is you better make absolutely sure you're doing appropriate controls. Otherwise, you're not doing science. In fact, most of the time, you are doing anti-science or against science. And as Stefan always says over and over, your first job as a scientist and when you're trying to know something that you cannot directly perceive is to prove yourself wrong by doing whatever is appropriate to prove that somehow this, this conclusion that you came to is not warranted. And usually that happens by doing controls. That's what we call that process. So getting back to this example, okay, so what should I say? I don't actually know that my brain is doing it. And as far as I know, nobody has proven without a shadow of a doubt that it's my brain that made this mistake. So you could say, okay, let's switch the words. It's my mind that made this mistake. But if you're going to be honest about it, which I think is the key here, I'm not sure you know what a mind is, because I'm not sure I know what a mind is or even my mind. I know people have said a lot of things, and maybe they're right and maybe they aren't. But I know I have no direct experience of that. I have no direct perception of that. So what can you say? Uh, as far as I can tell, all you can really say is, I made a mistake. I thought I saw the poles getting shorter, but then I did some science and actually went up and investigated, and I found that I, I was correct. Not my mind, not my brain, not my father or mother. I made a mistake. So, if you think about that as a scheme of how to know things, then you can apply that to everything, not just biology experiments. You can apply it pol politics, economics, communication with people. How do you know? Uh, then you should be, you can be aware of the mistakes. Am I perceiving this correctly? And do I just not, am I not skilled enough, trained enough, or am I inhibiting myself from, from perceiving what is actually there, but I just don't see it? And then when you come to the point, and there are things that are simply not perceivable and probably not knowable, but some things are knowable, and then you have to do very careful experiments, being step-by-step, step, making sure that there was no mistake made. If we all stuck to that, I think the world might be a better place. Now, let's try to apply that to what Stefan did. 
because I think he is a practitioner of this process. So let's recap here. And again, this has been something that we've talked about a lot. How does a virologist know there's a virus and causes disease? There's basically three steps. One is, uh, or the first is, uh, they do a viral culture and if they see a cytopathic effect, they say that is, quote, isolation of the virus and proves that the virus exists and causes disease. That's because they have never seen a thing that would be called a pathogenic virus from any fluid of any sick person ever. That's just a fact. So, Stefan, in part one of his experiments, said, let's investigate this. So he did an experiment where he put, uh, he did the entire cell culture, but without adding anything from a virus, anything from a person who's sick, anything that could contain a virus, he treated the culture by adding fetal calf serum by withdrawing the nutrients and by adding toxins like amphotericin and genomycin. And lo and behold, the observation was the tissue broke down in exactly the same way, proving that the cytopathic effect was not because of a virus, does not prove the existence of a virus, and does not prove that a virus that doesn't exist somehow causes disease. So that's the first thing. The second proof they use is that these particles that they see in the cell culture that they circle and put arrows to, you see those are SARS-CoV-2 or chickenpox virus or measles virus or whatever virus it is. And as I went through a few times ago, we now know uh, by examining similar uh, electron microscope pictures that those exact same images came from, at least in the 70s, from kidney biopsies, lung cancer, and many other samples. There is no possible way that we can say that those particles are SARS-CoV-2 or any other pathogenic virus. Uh, let me just say something else about the viral culture, as long as I brought up that subject. If you go into conventional virus therapy, uh, sorry, viral theory, how do they say a virus causes disease? They say, you inhale a droplet which contains this virus, in the current case, the virus being SARS-CoV-2. They say viruses, of course, they're not alive, so they can only reproduce or propagate themselves in a cell culture or living tissue. So these droplets containing the virus are inhaled into your lungs, and the lungs essentially act as a cell culture. 
Now, the other way they can, quote, find the virus is by taking that sputum and inoculating that on an actual cell culture outside of the living organism. But in both cases, we're doing exactly the same thing. In the one case, it's in you. Virus comes in in the droplet, gets into the cell, reproduces itself, makes thousands, millions of copies, bursts the cell, comes out in the sputum. In the second case, you take the sputum, contains the virus, inoculate onto the monkey kidney cells, put some stuff in it, grow it, million of copies, then you can see it. Since those are exactly the same, not exactly the same, but they're essentially the same process, there is no possible explanation why you can see it from the monkey kidney cells and you can't see it when it's in your lungs. Because if the problem is you need to culture it, i.e. propagate it, i.e. grow it in order to see it, well, you just did that because it grew in you, the best living culture cell or tissue there is called your lungs. And so the idea that there's not enough to see in your lungs, but there is in a cell culture is total nonsense, complete nonsense. Okay, we got that part. Now, step one, the cell culture doesn't prove anything because they failed to do the control. Stefan did the control, showed that the CPE is not due to a virus. Step two, that particle that we see, you see with the black arrow, that's the virus. Turns out it's not the virus because we can see exactly those particles in situations where there was no virus or even it's back all the way to 1973. And this was, by the way, mentioned in the original Enders paper all the way back to the 50s. And then the third proof is we sequence the whole genome of SARS-CoV-2. And so that was what part two of, of Stefan's experiment was, is that actually true? So what did he do? So he took a cell culture and he didn't put anything from anybody who was sick. There was no possibility of any virus. He starved and poisoned it in the way I mentioned, added fetal calf serum. It broke down. That's part one and two. Then he added mRNA, messenger RNA, from a yeast that you can buy commercially. No virus, just RNA fragments obtained from yeast. And he added that to the cell culture. So essentially now you have a brew of broken down cells, amphotericin, genomycin, some fetal calf serum, some nutrients, and RNA that was added from no virus, just from yeast. Now, then you look through that and you see no genome that represents SARS-CoV-2, obviously. 
But now let me point out the following. The genome of SARS-CoV-2 is considered to be 30,000 approximately base pairs. A base pair is a, is a letter, like it's either A, U, C, or G. So think of it like a letter of the alphabet or a bead on a string. So the genome of SARS-CoV-2 is 30,000 beads long in a very specific sequence. That's what we're told. Now, Stefan didn't find any 30,000 uh, bead sequence, 30,000 nucleotide sequence in that brew, but neither has any paper in the history of virology found any third any genome intact full sequence genome in any cell culture experiment that i know of if you look through there there is no 30000 bead string in a specific sequence anywhere in any of the experiments that were used to sequence this genome not one not ever not any virus that I know of. In other words, there is no 30, there is no complete genome in that mixture. Everybody agrees with that. So that is not a matter of dispute. Now, there's, as far as I can see, two possible reasons for that. One, obviously, it's not there. But there's another reason, which is, well, it's there, but there's not enough of those long 30,000 bead strings to see, and or we don't have a technique of finding a 30,000 bead string intact, and that's why we can't see it. So I would say to that, okay, fair enough. You could then we simply we don't have the technique to see a sequence 30,000 base pairs long. That's what they've come to the conclusion of. So they do what at this point is they, meaning the virologists, do a reasonable and logical thing. They cut all of the RNA. So, first of all, now let me back up a little bit. The process that we're describing is called unbiased de novo, meaning a new, unbiased meaning it's not biased according to the thoughts or perceptions of the investigator, unbiased de novo next generation sequencing. And then the last step will be metagenomic sequencing, which is the newest version of this but let's stick with unbiased de novo next generation sequencing. So how do they go from brew of genetic material and all kinds of stuff coming from human cell, human tissue, fetal, fetal calf serum, potential virus or viruses that are in there and monkey kidney cells. 
millions, even billions of pieces of genetic material. Step one, throw out the DNA. Why do you do that? Well, because it's not a DNA virus. How do you know that? Because we saw it in the picture. So already we have a huge problem because what they saw was not a SARS-CoV-2. And so they, for no good scientific reason, they threw out the DNA when, who knows, it could have been a DNA virus. Okay, they throw out the DNA and then they throw out the RNA that, that they say matches with human or known microbial sequences. Why do they do that? Well, because it's human and microbial, and so we don't, we don't want to investigate those, so those are discarded. The problem is we don't actually know where the SARS-CoV-2 sequences come from either, and what we find out later is that they do come from human uh, origin. They can. And so that is also introducing a sort of bias. Okay. Anyways, so they then they cut up the remaining pieces of RNA into segments that are a certain number of base pairs long. Uh, and by the way, uh, this is very complicated stuff. I don't expect everybody to remember this. And it's even possible, not that that's such a weird thing, that I may get some of these steps not quite right, which is why I want everybody to watch Stefan's explanation, because he's more of an expert. But I think I've got the gist of it, and I know I have at least the gist of the issue. I should have said that earlier. But this, I'm doing the best I can here. Anyway, so they break these up into smaller pieces. The reason for that is because then they can amplify these pieces by mixing in what are called primer sequences, which stick to the pieces in the brew. And once they stick through the PCR process, they can be doubled. The way to think of this is you have the, this beads on a string, but now think of it like a zipper. So you have, but the zipper is not every little piece of the zipper is the same. There are different letters. So the zipper is 3,000 different letters. There's only four letters. They're arranged in certain sequences, and you cut the zipper up into little pieces. Then each zipper piece only matches with a complementary piece, obviously. So you put in all the pieces that are from the previous coronavirus, which was found in the exact same way. And those are the primer sequences which are added to this. Now, why, did, why in an unbiased uh, examination of a, a, of a brew to find out what's in there, why did, they, why did they put coronavirus sequences? Why not measles virus sequences? Why not Ebola? Because they're looking for a coronavirus. So they put the coronavirus sequences in there. Those are the primers. They match to some of the sequences that are just in that brew. And that's what Stefan did. He puts uh, primer sequences in. 
And all there was in there was the breakdown of the cells, fetal calf serum and RNA from yeast. And then he put it through 12 cycles of amplification. So one piece becomes two and two becomes four and four becomes eight, et cetera. And pretty soon you get into high numbers. And that amplification allows you to see by a color change whether that sequence is present or not. So we've got around the problem of the reason we can't find the whole genome is we can't see those few pieces. So we've amplified it. We can't amplify the whole genome because the PCR process can only amplify small pieces. So he did that. He amplified it 12 times and he found 20% of the SARS-CoV-2 genome. So in other words, in the brew with the fetal calf serum and the monkey and the yeast RNA, he found 20% of the SARS-CoV-2 genome, which is also saying 80% he didn't find. And then he took it the next step and he increased the amplification cycles to 30. So he went from 12 cycles of doubling, the same mixture, he didn't add anything, he amplified it 30 times. And then he found that he, the primers matched with exactly 98% of the sequences that are believed to be representative of sequences in SARS-CoV-2. So what happened? How, co what, how come at 12 cycles, you only found 20% of the sequences, but once you did 30 cycles, now you have 98% of the sequences? How is that possible? Because you didn't add any more RNA or you didn't add anything from SARS-CoV-2, you know, or COVID patient or any virus, but now you're finding 98% of the sequences. Well, how is that possible? There's only one possible explanation, which is the PCR process as is well known and documented in the scientific literature and spoken about over and over by Carrie Mullis, creates new sequences simply through the process. It's a process of doubling and rearranging and heating and enzymes, and I don't know all the technical details of it, but Bottom line is 78% of the sequences were created anew that were never there in the original sample. And that's where his part two experiment has got so far. He has 98% of the genome of SARS-CoV-2 without there being any chance of SARS-CoV-2 being in that mixture, proving that the using the scientific method of controls, this is a control, is this 
conclusion, because there was SARS-CoV-2 in there? No, it is part of the process of amplification. The final two steps will be, he will increase the cycles to 40 to 45. By the way, as is done in almost all of the experiments and papers where they find the genome, they use 40 amplification cycles, creating all these different sequences which never existed in the original sample in the first place. They create new, new sequences, they put those in the computer, the computer aligns them by mixing them piece to piece, and his prediction is once they get up to 40 cycles, they will have 100% of the SARS-CoV-2 genome aligned and sequenced, even though there is no chance it was in the original mixture. Then the final step was if you change the primers to the primers that you would use to find, say, a different RNA virus like measles virus, you could repeat the whole thing, not adding anything from anybody with measles. And after 30 cycles, you'll get 98% of the measles genome. And after 40 to 45, you will get 100% of the, of the uh, measles genome when there is no possibility that the measles virus, the imaginary measles virus, was in that mixture in any time. And that's what I mean by the perception of these virologists is, is skewed. They think they're perceiving one thing, like the poles getting shorter, and when they try to investigate it, they forget to do proper controls. And so they end up with an erroneous conclusion, which has unfortunately messed up the whole world. The final thing I'll say about this is it also gets to a point, which I've tried to think a lot about. And there's an expression that people use called, I've racked my brains. And I would, again, uh, caution me and anybody else from using that expression, because I certainly didn't put my brains on a rack. And I'm now questioning the idea I have for a long time, even the idea that my brain knows anything, because that is not a direct experience. And when you start doing investigation, you find all kinds of nonsense. So I don't think that's accurate. I know, not my brain. I don't even like now using the word my mind because I don't really know where my mind starts and my body begins. The only experience I have is of me. So, but the principle here is if you want to know that a thing has parts and these parts come from that thing, you have to start with the thing first, and only then can you say with any degree of certainty that these pieces came from that thing. You can't say a paragraph came from this book 
unless you've seen the book first. You can't say this hoof came from a unicorn unless you've seen a unicorn first. I know of no valid experiment, no valid uh, example, that's a better word, where you can do that. And that is exactly what these virologists are trying to do. It is anti-science, it is anti-rational, it is anti-logic. You cannot make a whole from pieces if you've never seen the, pe the whole first. And if anybody can come up with an example where that's not true, I would love to hear it because I can't think of one. So there you go. Time for a few questions. So this is a rephrasing of last week's question, which I believe you misunderstood. I understood that virologists use low concentration as an excuse for not isolating and physically characterizing the virus in secretions from sick people. However, what excuse or reason do they give for not isolating and physically characterizing the particles they claim are pathogenic virus in tissue cultures after a cytoplastic event? I think you mean cytotoxic event. Uh, they say that is isolation. Why? They, they isolated it. There it is. Are they sure they haven't? Yes. If you don't believe me, send me a, cop, uh, a reference and the article and the explanation of how they took that particle and then isolated it well, even if they isolated it from a tissue culture, how do they know the origin of that particle? Okay. You mentioned that Peter Duesberg is his belief that HIV is not the cause of AIDS is working off a different theory that you are. Can you please elaborate on this? Yes. Peter Duesberg erroneously and without any justification, believed that the HIV existed, but he didn't think it was the cause of AIDS. He was wrong. Stefan wrote a very brilliant explanation describing exactly how he was wrong. The Perth group did the same thing. He had no justification for saying this. And it, in my opinion, set back the whole interest in this work, which is it's not that they don't even cause disease, it's they don't exist, they're just garbage. Uh, this is a take on the book. Are you, I'm interested in your take, if you have one, on the book Dune by Frank Herbert, given the spiritual importance of water in that book. I must confess, I've never heard, I think I've heard of the book. I don't remember ever reading it. If you want to send it to me, I'd be happy to take a look. Is there any sense to the notions of Zach Bush talks about of there being a large number of viruses within us and in the environment and over half of the genome comes from viruses? There is no sense in that. Viruses are garbage. The reason he, anybody would say that the genome is because of viruses is because the genome breaks down and we erroneously call those viruses. 
The idea of a virus is a misconception, period. What does scientists think they're working on at these bioweapons lab where so-called viruses are created and which so-called viruses apparently must be handled with extreme care? I'm, they're working on sequences and proteins and pieces of genetic material, which they probably think, and maybe for good reason, if they drank some of that stuff, might not be good for them or sprayed it on their skin. They are making bioweapons that have nothing to do with viruses. Because how could they? Virus is a misconception. Could nutrition and natural methods heal an inguinal hernia or is surgery inevitable? Thank you. I don't know of any case of an inguinal hernia being healed by anything but sewing it back up. So I don't know what, if I knew something, I would have to answer that question from personal experience. The last seven people I knew with a hernia, you know, I've heard that if you put castor oil compresses, that can work, but I've never actually seen that. So I have my doubts. My husband is at the hospital with COVID lungs, quote, ground glass. He's very sick. Now the doctors are upset that he didn't get the injection. They blame me, kind of hard to bear. Not a question, just needs strength. I really do not want to lose him. Now they will talk to the kids and tell them they need to have it or make them sick. Inferno. This is a very tragic situation. I, I can't tell you what to do, but I would certainly look into seeing if there's anybody in your area who has other ways of treating this that have been successful. Uh, maybe you can comment on this. How can we explain based on the lack of contagion about the sexually diseases, uh, papilloma, herpes, et cetera? So that's an interesting question and I, uh, must admit, I'm going to steal my answer from an interview that Andy and I did with Patrick Timponi on one radio network, something, I think, dot com, because uh, I think Andy gave a brilliant answer to this. But let's just go through the steps here, because this is an example. I'm going to keep beating this now. You. You, meaning you, whoever answered, asked that question, or anybody else out there, raise your hand if you have the personal experience that this is a virus that caused you to get herpes from this person. And hopefully nobody raised their hand because nobody has that experience. Now, the experience that you may have had is I didn't have herpes, and then I had sex with this person, and then I had what we call herpes. And let's get away from jargon and say what it is that you experience, which is painful blisters with goopy fluid in them. That's an actual observation of what happened to you. 
and you didn't have that before. Now, I would say that many people have had that experience. So let's dissect that a little bit, trying to be as clear and rational and scientific as possible. Because we have to admit, A, that nobody has the experience of a virus, and B, if you unearth the herpes lesion, a organism or a particle called a herpes virus has never actually been clearly found in any of those samples. That's just the fact. You have to culture it uh, in order to see it. And then you get into the whole problem of the controls of the culture. That's just a fact and you have to deal with that. So what is actually happening to these people? Uh, if you forget about your theories about viral infections or infections or even disease, what you have happening is an eruption of seemingly toxic debris through and out your genital organs, which by the way is painful. Now, the next question is, uh, why is that happening? Well, it certainly could be that there's a quote virus, but since you can't find the virus there, and as far as I know, nobody has ever purified a herpes virus and given that to a person and had them get herpes. If you know of such a study, please send it to me because I don't think you'll ever find it. Now, everybody raise their hands. I wish I could see the hands, but I can't. Who thinks, A, that the only thing in, say, semen that is in ejaculated into the person or in vaginal secretions, the only thing in there is a virus. Hopefully nobody rose their hand because that's ludicrous. There's obviously lots of things, proteins, cells, who knows what. There's probably, if you put that on a electrophoresis, you could probably find hundreds of different things. So how do you know that none of those did it and it was the virus? Answer, you don't. Now, here's another question. Everybody raised their hand who says, the only thing transmitted through an act of, of sex is physical stuff, i.e. vaginal secretions or semen. My guess is nobody rose their hand because there's a lot of things transferred, feelings, touch, emotional stuff, probably even traumas sometimes, mixed feelings, maybe I shouldn't have done this. Um, there's a lot of things. So how do we know that that isn't the culprit? Answer, you don't, if you want to be scientific. If you want to be scientific and say, this is what it is, you have to isolate that thing and prove it, which hasn't been done. Now, the explanation that Andy gave, there's two possible things. One is there's something else in there, maybe more than two. And uh, so it's something else in there that's causing you to have this eruption. That's one possible thing. Another possible explanation is some of these are just 
weakening of the tissue and maybe it's a new experience, a new person. So you have more sex than usual and you irritate the tissue and anyways, you're collagen and vitamin C deficient and your tissue breaks down and then you ooze out some stuff and that's what we call herpes. But the really brilliant explanation is uh, one of two things. It could be that if this is a new encounter, your, for lack of a better word, your soul or you, the deeper parts of you, is very excited because maybe you met somebody that you could actually spend your life with and maybe even have a child with, which is one of the most special and sacred things anybody can imagine. And in that case, your body may have, quote, decided, let's get rid of some toxins from our genital region by oozing them out through the skin because thank God we found our mate and we're going to about to have a baby in six months or a year or two years. And so we're going to spend the next number of weeks discharging a lot of toxins from our genital region and we'll be a lot cleaner and healthier. And so we can have a much nicer, healthier baby and thank God for what they call herpes. Unfortunately, none of us really have been used to thinking like that. So we misinterpret the whole thing. We erroneously claim because we haven't thought about how we know anything. We didn't do controls and we poison the people with acyclovir. And so the poisons now are worse. And then we have all kinds of troubles that could have been avoided if we just think properly. So I think I'm going to leave you with that thought. And uh, thanks for coming as always. Um, we have two more weeks before the uh, conference. I, I'm just so excited when I saw the schedule. Um, and please uh, sign up for that. Watch the talk with Andy and Stefan that goes into more in depth about uh, his exact experiments, and probably he'll get it righter than I did. And even this T Patrick Timponi interview was a lot of really interesting stuff. Thanks again. Everybody take care of themselves, and I will see you next week.